Welcome to Dangerous Wisdom, a journey into mystery and a gateway to the mind of nature and the nature of mind. This is Dr. Nikos, your friendly neighborhood soul doctor, happy to be here with you so that together we can create a culture of wisdom, love, and beauty. I'm joined today by a very special guest, the poet Grace Wells. Grace is an award-winning eco-poet and nature writer, living on the west coast of Ireland. Nature, spirit of place, and environmental concern are the large themes of her writing. She is an organic gardener and orchard planter who hosts The Little Sanctuary, a small retreat space for human, plant, and creaturely species, and she regularly volunteers with Home Tree, a native woodland charity which looks after biodiversity and encourages the reforestation of large landscape areas. We're speaking in part because of the release of Grace's latest collection of poetry. It's called The Church of the Love of the World. It's put out by Daedalus Press, and I'll put some links in the show notes. In fact, we have quite a bit of show notage, some copious show notes today. And before welcoming Grace, I also want to mention that we have a little warning from my brother Hermes. This is not the first time this has happened, but once again, Hermes has warned me. And I know we can all be skeptical of the radical interwovenness of the cosmos. Nevertheless, we are in the pre-shadow phase before Mercury goes retrograde, or Hermes, as I would call him. And when we get in this phase, Hermes just likes to warn a little, nudge a little, to remember to be mindful with our communication. So it's a good reminder for all of us. I'm happy to be the one to bear that reminder, yet again. (laughs) And uh, you'll have to be mindful as a listener now, because my voice will sound a bit off, sort of like I'm talking through a walkie-talkie or something like that, or an old-school radio call-in show. But the good news is, Grace is delightful, and her wonderful poetry, her sensitive mind, her sensitive soul, will shine through in the dialogue, and I know you'll enjoy it. So without further ado, my dear Grace, welcome to Dangerous Wisdom. Thank you for joining us. Oh, thank you so much, Nikos, and just a joy to hear you read that introduction in your beautiful voice. It just was so, uh, the, the pacing was exquisite. I really enjoyed that. Oh, wow. Compliments on the pacing. And I'll have you know, I hadn't pre-read your bio. I just opened that up and hoped that we could make it along. <laughs> Maybe the pacing was me uh, thinking. But uh, I wanted to, let's see, where should we start, Grace? There's so many places to start. I'm curious about this. I, I, people can now tell you are not from the Emerald Isle originally. Mm-hmm. Yes. But, uh, you know, I can understand the draw because they seem like the keepers of the language, don't they? Yes, indeed. Um, there is a uh, a sort of, I don't know quite what the word is. I'm thinking of something like a font, but that's not the right word. It's like a spring. There's a spring of language here that just bubbles up out of the ground. And it tends to come in English mostly now, but I think it's because it's got the Gaelic origins. Um, And it is a a language of the land. 
um, and a language of people. And in fact, there's this beautiful word, tour, which means in Irish both people and place. It's the same word and means uh, a locale, a, a place, and it means the people that live there too, tour. So I think there is a magic in the Irish language, which we in English don't really have. And in fact, you know, I don't I don't want to jump necessarily into that uh, bog hole straight away. But there, there is much to be said about how the ecological crisis is very much impacted by the English language and how English has a real lack of words of praise of nature and, a, and a, many holes in the English language, which we actually need filled in right now so we can kind of properly grapple with what is going on. Yeah. Yeah. That's, it, it's an interesting thing. And uh, this is something that uh, I think we connected on a little early on because I had mentioned that uh, essay I wrote about the relationship of people and place mm. and uh, how there's something, you know, quite important also to recognize in the limitations of our language that we don't realize how the Indo-European languages in general can seduce us into certain metaphysical assumptions. And then certainly uh, when you look at the history of what's happened in the dominant culture, there has been this real problem with a forgetting of sacredness and, yes. uh, and an inability to have that. And so, you, um, well, then all that magic of the language, is that part of what lured you to from, how did you get there? How did you get? <laughs> That's so funny. Um, no, I think I think all things really are in some sort of divine plan. I, I really do. What lured me to Ireland originally was uh, a female artist who lived in the Black Valley in County Kerry. And I was told that she was an amazing woman, incredibly creative. She lived in a cave with no electricity. Um, but that wasn't actually true. She'd been in one of the last houses in Ireland to get electricity, and it was very much like a cave. But she lured me over, and she lured me. Her name was Lily Van Oost, and I was particularly struck by her because she seemed like what I wanted, which was a strong woman. I needed to know what a strong woman looked like. And I thought that just by hanging around Lily and would become that myself. I would become a strong woman. But I didn't realize that you, if you want to become a strong woman, you have to go through some sort of uh, mythic quest and be transmuted uh, yourself. And um, that that is what kind of I think Ireland was asking me to do because I came from London. I lived a pretty ordinary urban lifestyle and Ireland was an immersion in people and place and landscape and the the deep resonance of the earth. And I certainly would never have found that living in London. Hmm. Yeah, that's really uh, interesting on a lot of levels. I go, I'm going to keep thinking of Gary Snyder, I already have, but, you know, he has that, that uh, idea in one of his essays. Did you ever read uh, Practice of the Wild? I'm sure no. I recommended it, but so he's got an essay in there called "The Etiquette of Freedom." I, I think that Practice of the Wild should be a fundamental textbook for uh, people living on Turtle Island who recognize their need to reindigenize, or who recognize the need mm -hmm. to to raise the call to reindigenize. But he does talk about this fork in the road. You know, he talks about Descartes and Hobbes and uh, Newton all being city dwellers, 
and uh, you know kind of bequeathing us you know that we could if, if we took the wrong path you know the fork of the road came and and we went in more more deeply into this thing that we we call civilization and um that it's lacking uh, this connection that you're talking about, and, and his work is very much about how to establish that here on Turtle Island, what that means. And it's mm-hmm. interesting what you get cut off from living in the city, that we don't realize that we can't think the same way. And that's related to the other aspect of your story, which is that you had this realization that, see, we can't just think the new thing. We have to become the person who can think the new thing. So we can't yeah. just, A, the culture doesn't have, that's part of its uh, lack, right, is it doesn't have elders. We, we may not even have many adults. Uh, you know, that's part, <laughs> part of the things. I know that sounds funny. Uh, I've made this as a serious, and I'm not alone. Paul Shepard and, and uh, other uh, pretty serious thinkers have suggested that you, we don't have adults anymore because the culture doesn't know how to produce them. So then you may be recognizing a little bit of that or thinking, I need to see what a re- an actual model woman would look like someone with uh, you know maturity and strength and it turns out i have to transform i can't just uh, <laughs> it's really i like the way you put that you, know, you remember socrates in the symposium he's late and he comes in and uh, and one of the people there sits down because socrates has been he's been meditating you know he, he's like people know that it, you know he occasionally goes into these altered states and now somebody says, well, if I sit next to you, maybe the wisdom will, you know, infuse into me. And he said, if only it were that easy. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I think, you know, that's a very appealing idea, isn't it? That uh, we will become wise um, with with some sort of ease, you know, if only we just pay attention to it, we'll become wise. But I think that's not how it works, that there is a mythic journey that we have to undergo before we find what wisdom is yeah that's right yeah that's very platonic and it's interesting because it's going to it can't come in a certain way like it's paradoxical but for socrates all of these gestures involve uh, receiving a madness because he says that it's i kind of make a distinction between insanity which is what what we call civilization has this pattern of insanity in it and then there's the madness that is the only cure for it and socrates when he's talking actually about um, the arts in part he says well madness gives us all the best things that we have all the best things we have come from madness and there are four mad he says that there it's a madness of the right kind which he says is a divine madness so it is the divine that gives it to us and of course one of the kinds is poetry so every time you write a good poem socrates is saying no it's a divine madness that that came there but then you know philosophy is supposed to encompass all the four kinds of madness and help to help us to return to that uh, to recover from the insanity but yeah you have to go through that transformation that's beautiful i love that i haven't heard that before but um that resonates absolutely yeah and yeah. and it is certainly i it is certainly a divine intervention uh, these poems come from somewhere beyond us for sure i i, I hadn't labeled it a madness but you know there is a lot of struggle and challenge to live as a writer of any sort, I think. So, um, yeah, I I absolutely accept that uh, phrase. It's beautiful. Yeah, maybe most of all the poet, right? Isn't the the poet the most starving of the writers? I mean, let's face it. it Yes, in this culture, apparently, yes, I think that that is true. I think the poor poets, it's it's so interesting when you go back a couple of, you know, well, certainly a hundred years and you go back to, um, Byron and, and Shelley and that era and 
poetry and Neruda, even people talk about Neruda and how just everyone in Chile read Neruda. And, and that's not true of poetry anymore. Poetry sort of somehow got left behind. And um, I, I think that's an interesting thing. And of course, there's wonderful poets like Mary Oliver that didn't didn't get left behind that, you know, people love and um, she really appealed to the world. But there are so many poets that exist and nobody's ever heard of them. Um, and yeah, I do, I do think that poets poetry has somehow not quite caught up with the modern world. It's probably the hare and the tortoise. It's going to run ahead pretty soon or the hare will run itself out and the old tortoise will catch up. The tortoise of poetry will finally get to where it needs to get to. But at the moment, certainly in Ireland, I don't feel uh, poetry is really um, kind of addressing the crises that we're in. Yeah. It's interesting, too, because of the fact that, well, I mean, there are a couple things that are going on there, aren't there? One is that the madness part is important because it means we have to let go of what we think we know. And so there's a feeling of the ego's defensiveness. And mm -hmm. as one of these madnesses, poetry then has to be um, repressed. It has to be pushed away because it is asking us to let go of a certain style of consciousness and um, to allow that divine madness to come in. Because under the ideal case, if we receive the poet's words in the right way, then something can happen. When, if we receive any words in the right way, something that, that could happen that could in, it bring that spark to our own soul. But it's also interesting that Bateson got so much, uh, so much flack for talking about the thinking, of, the thinking process of nature. And one, of those, so what he, what he, one thing he said is evolution is a mental process. Now, that's a bit a a astonishing of a, of a suggestion in a variety of ways, because it's as if uh, it almost goes against Darwin, who really wanted to say evolution is a material process, that he was such a materialist. And I think that's a little bit, he was a little off there, because it's, it's a metaphysical speculation. I don't think Bateson's going the other direction, but you'll see my point in a second. When he describes it, though, is what I want to get at. And he says, okay, you have a certain syllogism, uh, all human beings are mortal. Uh, Socrates is a human being, therefore Socrates is mortal. So uh, that sounds right, and we say that's a valid argument, and it's even given a name, a syllogism in Barbara. And he said, but that's not the syllogism that uh, nature uses. N nature's thinking is more like this. Uh, uh, all human beings die. Grass, all grasses die. Human beings are grass. <laughs> and of course, the scientists made fun of him. And he said, yeah, but you, you might not like it, but that's how nature thinks, which is much more poetic <laughs> and, of course, slightly fallacious in a way. Yeah, I think that's very beautiful, isn't it? And it, it does... One has to sort of make a, a leap of in thought to, to to understand what he's saying there, and and I think that it's true. You know, all human beings are grass, and that's sort of where we have to get to. Do I think, Nikos, that's where we are not. You know, we are in this paradigm of humans are humans and grass is grass, and we are vastly superior. But when we get to humans are grass. Um, 
then then I think we'll we'll be able to really address what we need to address. Mm-hmm. 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 Well, grass is one of the things you write about, and I think we'll turn to it in, in a little bit. But I wanted to to look at some of the other little moments from uh, w- one of the, the things that we're touching on too here, which I love, is uh, how we have made a duality in general between language and life. And uh, I thought maybe if you wouldn't mind, do you have your book handy? I do, yeah. yeah. Well, I wondered if you might uh, read the first poem um, that you have in this collection, Vestige. Yes, gladly. Um, Yes, Vestige. Things being so urgent. When you open a book, its leaves should take you back to the forest they came from, the creek of beech, the wind-restless pine. Between these covers a scent of resin and loam. A book's spine like the trunk of a tree to lean into, the pulp of its paper a fine mesh of twig and sky. Each word on the page so verdant, viridian, that you soften into moss and strengthen into the stubborn protective root of briar. Type and ink like the small handiwork of ant, the quiet labour of beetle and wasp, mending the world between end papers in such a deep entangling way as to make you part of the woodland, embowered, arboreal, sylvan. Mm, I really like that. I ha- I'm so partial to the words arboreal and sylvan, in part because I grew up in Pennsylvania, which is Penn's Woods. I spent some of my childhood there, and I- I've just, <laughs> I know it seems so silly, just the word sylvan is, is, must have been a sound I've heard for a long time. Well, I- let, let's jump into that just for a second, Nikos, because I think this is one of the key problems um, that, 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 you know, Sylvan comes from Sylvanus, the god of the woods. And I think it's such a huge thing that we have been kind of ridiculed out of naming nature as sacred, naming the woods as having a god or naming the land as being a goddess. And I think this is one of the huge, huge cruxes that our environmental crises rests on. Because if we could just allow ourselves to see the land as sacred again, to see Sylvanus in the woods again, we wouldn't tear them down so easily. And I think this is such a huge, huge thing, and I'm sure you have much to say on the subject. But for me, it's really, I I often think about this triple spiral of root causes to the environmental crisis. And one of them for me is that we're not permitted to see the divine in nature, you know, that that pagans, animists, all of those people have been ridiculed all of my life, certainly, and for many hundreds of years before I came along. And I think that 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 is really a massive, massive stumbling block. Oh, yes. Yeah. And that's also part of this is where Bateson and I really deeply resonate, because what he was trying to establish was what he called an epistemology of the sacred. So it really is recognizing that the sacred is, there's something so important and precious that he, like Nietzsche, realized that losing that was really a a terrifying thing. 
and it was not so easy to, um, it quite, in fact, quite foolish to let go of it. I was thinking, in part, while you were saying this, as a, a sort of counterpoint, a passage from Dogen, and it, it includes a poem, but I really like how Dogen is, he insists on the non-duality of word and world, of life and language, generally, and on uh, the teachings of every part of reality. So here's a passage he's um, trying to teach through this. A sutra, now a sutra is like a discourse, you know, um, so any kind of teaching is a, is a sutra. Um, originally discourses of the Buddha, but the sutra doesn't exclusively mean that, but sutras are, uh, are the teachings, especially in the Buddhist tradition and Hindu tradition, that word is common. So you might think of a sutra as a written text, but here's what Dogen says. A sutra is not other than a sutra as yourself. A teacher is invariably a teacher as yourself. This being so, to visit teachers everywhere is to visit yourself everywhere. To take up 100 grasses is to take up yourself. To take up myriad trees is to take up yourself. Study yourself that always endeavors thus. In this study, drop away, merge, and realize yourself. Now, in a different teaching, here's the, where the poem comes in. He says, slipping out of your old skin, not constrained by past views, you manifest immediately what has been dormant for boundless eons. At this very moment manifests I don't know, who doesn't know, you have no expectations, and the Buddha I sees beyond seeing. This experience is beyond the realm of human thinking. In Song, China, there was a man who called himself Layman Dongpo. He was originally named Shi of the Su family, and his initiatory name was Zidan, a literary genius. He studied the way of dragons and elephants in the ocean of awakening. He descended deep chasms and soared freely through clouds. One night, when Dongpo visited Mount Lu, he was enlightened upon hearing the sound of the valley stream. He composed the following verse, which he presented to Chongzong. Valley sounds are the long, broad tongue of the Buddha. Mountain colors are the unconditioned body of the Buddha. Eighty-four thousand verses are heard through the night. How can I possibly express this someday? The night when this lay poet was enlightened, this is Dogen now commenting on that poem, and then I'll, I promise I'm almost done. The night when that lay poet was enlightened is related to the fact that previously he heard from his teacher about insentient beings teaching the Dharma. Although he was not immediately enlightened by his teacher's discourse, the stream sounds struck him as if raging waves were soaring in the sky. Thus the stream sounds now awaken Dong Po. Is this the working of the stream sounds, or is it the teacher's discourse flowing? I suspect that Chao Chao's talk on the Sermon of Insentient Beings, still reverberating, may secretly be intermingled with the nightly sounds of streams. Can anyone dare to understand what entered Dong Po's ears? A pint of water or an ocean into which all rivers enter? Ultimately speaking, is it the poet that is enlightened or is it the mountains and waters that are enlightened? Those who have discerning eyes should never fail to understand Buddha's long, tongue 
and his pure, unconditioned body. So, this you see, I know it's a very long uh, uh, counterpoint, but you see this, um, this receiving of everything, even the supposedly insentient, let alone the sentient beings, that they are this pure body of the awakened mind. It was beautiful to listen to, Nikos, and, uh, you know, so many elements of that I, I wanted to linger with. And just uh, tell me and everybody else, how, how do we find that reading if we wanted to find it again? Yes, I, <laughs> I can. Uh, thank you for t- telling me this now, but I will try to put it in the notes. But it's, um, it's a very famous passage, and you see that Dogen himself is quite poetic in his own language, and he's citing yeah. a poet which is a very Zen thing to do. (laughs) Really, (laughs) poetry just goes through that tradition so intensely. What what I loved, it it really woke up for me a sense of, you know, how how rigid we've become in our culture, how conformist we are. I know the beat poets uh, kind of warned of the conformity of consciousness so that everybody was thinking the same thing. And I, I think we've got much worse since the 1960s. And you know, we we are all thinking in a very conformist way, a sort of Western culture, modern Western culture, and its various iterations that sort of seem to change every couple of years and kind of get worse, if you ask me. But um, I was reminded when you were reading all of that beautiful material there about the, the valley and the sound and all of those things that David Abram has a little slither of uh, information where he talks about being in the Himalaya and coming upon monks who are standing in the middle of a stream with these prayer blocks, you know, the wooden blocks which have the words of the prayers on on them, and they're lowering these in and out of the stream as if they're putting the prayer onto the stream and sending it down river. And it's one of those little gems of a story that really stays with me and speaks, I think, to just a different way of being in the world, a different way of relating to the world, that our conformity no longer allows us to do. You know, if you saw somebody standing in the river here with a prayer block, um, you'd call the doctor for help. So I think when you read that, I was excited. You know, I was excited by the possibilities of being in the world in a different way. And I think, you know, I... I herald and sort of proclaim and worship anybody who can talk about and express being in the world in a different way that allows us to really experience the earth that we're on and, and it helps us to step out of that conformity and the blinkers of Western culture and see. Um, there's a wonderful eco-philosopher, John Moriarty, who sadly died um, here in Ireland, and he talked about kind of the cataracts of our culture and occasionally we get to lift those cataracts and see in a different way and that uh, piece that you read from so beautifully really did that for me it was like suddenly everything lifted and I could I could see mm. yeah Dogen has that, that he's always had that for me you know I read Dogen and I get kind of overwhelmed with the uh, the vastness of his heart and mind and the way he he just makes it whenever I read Dogen, especially when I was younger and early in the practice and struggling with the kinds of anxiety and depression that the culture you know is so good at creating in us, mm-hmm. uh, there's just always such a feeling of 
of um, positivity, you know, that you just felt like the world is workable when you read him because he's expressing. And it's interesting when you say that too about the expressing because the poet writes this poem and this was part of, you know, it's so interesting that in the Buddhist traditions, I mean, first of all, the earliest collection of women's literature, written literature that we have, comes from that tradition. It was a collection of poems that women wrote in praise of, of their their transformed experience with Buddha. And, um, and it was common that if you had a kind of profound insight, a transformative insight, that how you would uh, sort of convey it would be to write a verse. And then, so the poet does this, and he is a poet, and we're supposed to think he's a literary genius, as Dogen's presenting him, so he writes a verse, but then the verse is simply saying, I don't know how to express this. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, wonderful that the problem is still here all this time later. <laughs> yes. Well, and it relates, too, to what you, your, those lines, things being so urgent, when you open a book, its leaves should take you back to the forest they came from. And isn't that part of the problem, is that uh, we don't do that? I mean, it's all connected to what we're talking about here. Mm-hmm. In your next poem, even, which maybe you could read a little bit from that, uh, would, you, would you read just maybe the first two verses of the uh, uh, the next poem, We Speak on the Outbreath, the first two stanzas? Great. Um, yeah, we speak on the outbreath. At the writer's festival, several days go by without leaf or flower. No glimpse of river, no shriek of white gull. At the writer's festival, few speak of the more than human world, as if our thinking has been tamed. Now, there it is, right? We don't see that, that our thinking has been tamed. Mm. And it might be part of, um, it, it's really part of the whole problem. The, the, the thing that happens to us when we are domesticated, re- when we have a duality between nature and human, between wildness and civilization, that duality is the space of our insanity. It's a mirage of distance, not a real distance that we can live, but it changes us. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Um Absolutely. Sometimes I write these things and I, I don't quite know what I've done or why I've done it. But I'm I'm so glad you paused there with that, Nikos, because I do think that that is what has happened. And again, it's that sense of conformity. So on the one hand, we've been tamed and domesticated, and on the other hand, we've become circus animals. So yeah, it it is to let the the thinking beyond its the, the boundaries of Western culture because, well, I, I'm, I'm getting on a bit now. And um, and so what I see, I think, Nikos, is, well, things have got worse or things are not going to change or, um, you know, the forces of technology, the forces of globalization, the forces of huge corporations and how they behave, that that is all seemingly to get stronger and stronger and have um, a bigger effect on ordinary people's lives and and our freedom and our uh, sense of control. Like we're being very much more controlled than I think we were when I was a child, for example. I think Western culture back in the 1970s had, had just more freedom in it. And I 
I would be deeply concerned for 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 us. I think we are being more and more tamed. Uh, so that that is alarming to me. Yeah, and I you know I want people to know I've, I've put had this theme in my work for some time, but I just want to emphasize that we're not we're not being. Um, loose here in our suggestions. There is hard data on this, uh, mm-hmm. for instance, on what's referred to as the three-day effect. You can look that up, and you find that what the, the researchers showed is that if you spend at least three days in a wild place, no technology, and you're given a creativity measure, the people score on average 50% higher than those who just spent three days relaxing somewhere but not but still in the built environment. Wow. There's there's a good evidence that the built environment makes us dumber, and that the built things like that even to the to the point where one one of the uh, research papers looked at having just having a cell phone in the room. So they had p- people go in to take a, 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 essentially an intelligence measure, and one group was told you can go in with with your phone, but you have to keep it away. It has to be out of sight, and you can't touch it. So it's in your purse, it's in your backpack. The other group is told, you can't have any phones in there, so we've provided lockers. You can, you can lock your phone up and then you can get it when you come back. And even though the people weren't allowed to look at their phone or touch it or take it out, the people who were in that group who kept their phones with them performed less well than the people who had to lock their phone away. So the mere presence of the thing. Amazing, amazing. It, it really is. And I want to... I think the opposite is is also possible and exciting, Nikos. I, I, I was reminded when you were talking about all of that of how, for myself, because I mostly live in a rural or on the edge of a small, small, small town in the west of Ireland. But if I go into the city within a very short space of time, you know, I'm just driving in through the outer streets, I can feel myself conforming like conforming in thought, conforming in deed, conforming all over the place. But but that's the exciting thing. Now, if we can change the culture of what we are conforming to, if we could get everybody thinking um, toward the earth and having a kind of a, a, conformis- a conformism where we are all environmentalists, then we've changed the, the, the dynamic and we can do um, do amazing things in terms of preserving environments and saving biodiversity and all kinds of things. So our our desire to conform is a is a marvelous tool if we're conforming to the right thing. The trouble at the moment is that we're conforming to the wrong thing. That's right. Yes, that's exactly it. You, you're you're sounding like a proper Platonist. You know, Socrates is smiling <laughs> at us because he said we have to conform to the soul. We, we must oh. conform to the sacred and to the divine. That was his way of putting it. But, you know, so we could say that it is that, that this is the way that I define spirituality is that spirituality has two elements. One is a willingness, a commitment, not just a willingness, a commitment to find out for ourselves rather than merely to believe. And the second one is a commitment and a longing to recognize our longing to participate in something that transcends the ego. Now, the spiritual traditions then, or the philosophical traditions, ask us to find that participation in the non-duality of spiritual and ecological realities. That's the, that's the place. So, you, you know, you can call it conformity, but it's, it's participation, in fact. 
that you can't, it's not that I have to conform to your body for us to dance tango, but in order to embrace you, I'm naturally conforming to your body, but I'm embracing you, right? So there's an active embrace and participation that we share that in a way, of course, I'm conforming to your body, but we don't even think of it that way. We think of it as um, just how we engage, how we connect. Would you mind uh, reading the last, um, on page 14, the, the last, uh, starting with when we speak in that same poem? Oh, absolutely. I'd be, be delighted to, uh, Nikos. Yes. So, I, again, I'm, I'm coming back um, in when we speak on the out-breath. Mm-hmm. When we speak, we speak on the out-breath, but must first draw in the fine threads of this earth. Whatever we speak of now, We will need to be like blades of prairie grass that bend in the wind of what's coming. Perhaps the only sensible thing would be to howl the way Europe's last 12,000 wolves are surely howling, a sound somewhere between grief and battle cry. The tribes of us in this together tasked to heed Emerson and advance, advance, upon chaos and the dark. And that really brings us to, I thought, uh, this was a a bit synchronistic in that you were talking, uh, you sent me an email about shame, and I had thought of this passage from Emerson. And Mm. so so here... (laughs) Here is, and it's from the same essay. So first, maybe for people who don't know this line, now it's from a, an essay that's famous here and can be so easily confused because it's called self-reliance. Um, but So he says, he, in the p- passage that your line is from, trust thyself, every heart vibrates to that iron string. Accept the place the divine providence has found for you, the society of your contemporaries, the connection of events. Great people have always done so and confided themselves childlike to the genius of their age, betraying their perception that the absolutely trustworthy was seated at their heart, working through their hands, predominating in all their being. And we are now men, sorry, and we are now men and must accept in the highest mind the same transcendent destiny, and not minors and invalids in a protected corner, not cowards fleeing before a revolution, but guides, redeemers, and benefactors obeying the almighty effort and advancing on chaos and the dark. Now, here's what he says a little bit later, though, and it's really, all this is so interwoven. Now, he says that, uh, I, I love how it's an iron string. I'm sure this, uh, you know, it's like you want that string to vibrate, but it's hard to trust ourselves. So later he says, it must be that when God speaketh, he, or we could say she, should communicate not one thing, but all things, should fill the world with her voice, should scatter forth light, nature, time, souls from the center of the present thought and new date and new create the whole. Whenever a mind is simple and receives a divine wisdom, old things pass away. Means, teachers, texts, temples fall. It lives now and absorbs past and future into the present hour. All things are made sacred by relation to it, one as much as another. 
Human beings are timid and apologetic. They are no longer upright. They dare not say, I think, I am, but quote some sage or saint. They are ashamed before the blade of grass or the blowing rose. These roses under my window make no reference to former roses or to better ones. They are for what they are. They exist with God today. There is no time to them. There is simply the rose. It is perfect in every moment of its existence. Before a leaf bud has burst, its whole life acts. In the full-blown flower, there is no more. In the leafless root, there is no less. Its nature is satisfied, and it satisfies nature in all moments alike. But human beings postpone or remember. They do not live in the present, but with reverted eye lament the past, or heedless of the riches that surround them, stand on tiptoe to foresee the future. They cannot be happy and strong until they too live with nature in the present above time. This should be plain enough, yet see what strong intellects dare not yet hear God herself unless she speaks the phraseology of I know not what David or Jeremiah or Paul, and forgive me Emerson for changing the, <clears throat> the words a little, but I love, you see how, isn't that wonderful how he brings all the shame and the unwillingness to hear the teachings of the divine right there in the world. I was very struck by that. I mean, there's so much there that one hears kind of regurgitated. Like the, the, all the beautiful things he's saying there about not being in the, how we stand up on tiptoe to think about the future and, uh, you know, how we dwell on the past and it, really profound, um, beautiful, beautiful piece. And uh, Nicholas, can you go back to that bit where he says we, uh, we're ashamed before grass, ashamed before the rose? He said something along that um, was a, a little, maybe a little paragraph back up. Into yeah. yeah, absolutely. Yeah, he, he says, uh, uh, he's talking, he's saying, he's referring to human beings generally, that, that uh, we are ashamed before the blade of grass or the blowing rose. Yeah. yeah. And what do, you, what do you think he's saying there? I, I think that's such an interesting thing. We are ashamed before the blade of grass, but... What what is your take on what he means by that? Well, I guess it's interesting whether we want to read it as as we should be or we already are. <laughs> like maybe there's something in us that already is, you know, and he didn't have the psychodynamic language for it. But it is almost to say that we keep away from nature. I, you know, I, I'm sure you've heard me say it a million times that education in the dominant culture has one principal function, and that is to keep us away from philosophy. That is inclusive of keeping us away from nature and art. And that is because the, the teachings are there. This has been recognized by indigenous cultures, by many wisdom traditions. So Dogen we heard from, but you know the indigenous cultures everywhere are screaming, yes, of course, that's what we're telling you. And so there's a sense in which we realize we have put some um, regurgitated pablum again and again over top of reality, and we're kind of ashamed that the things that we merely parrot are, are not as true as the wisdom and divinity being lived by the natural world right in front of us. Mm. 
And so it, there is this sense in which we're ashamed of ourselves, aren't we? And the, the dominant culture does a really good job of, of creating that in such a way that uh, famously, you know, when the Dalai Lama was having a dialogue with a, a psychiatrist, and she, and she was talking about, or a psychologist, and she was talking about how clients self-harm. And the translators telling the Dalai Lama, you know, the clients are, you know, are, you know, are cutting themselves with razor blades or whatever. And the Dalai Lama says, you know, you you must be misunderstanding. That can't be what she's saying. And and he so he respectfully, out of respect for the Dalai Lama, asks again <laughs> to say, can you say it again? Because the Dalai Lama thinks that I've made a mistake. And she said the same thing. And he assured the Dalai Lama. He said, yeah, that's what happens. And he just cried. He couldn't believe that people could hate themselves and be so ashamed of themselves. Mm-hmm. Well, I would love to um, dive a little bit into shame, into that eco-shame or nature shame. Um, It's something I've been thinking about for for some time, Nikos. So I have a little B. I have three Bs in my bonnet, really. I don't just have one B. And where it began for me was I I had read David Abram, you know, his writing Becoming Animal and then George Monbiot had a book called Feral. And then I was at a workshop where Robert Romanchin was talking about, well, the best thing that we can all do is become animal. And uh, I, I was starting as, as a woman, I was starting to get just a little irritated by all of these gentlemen telling me to become animal. And, and something was kind of stirring in me. I was like, hang on, hang on a minute. This isn't, this isn't making sense. I can't quite get this. And it suddenly sort of landed, you know, that all my life as a woman, I had been taught to be ashamed of my animality, you know, ashamed of my periods, ashamed of breastfeeding, ashamed of all kinds of things. Um, and and now suddenly these three men wanted me to embrace my animality and it just wasn't going to work. You know, you just couldn't, you couldn't give me all those years, 30 years of being told one way of being and then turn it around. But it started to let me think about, okay, shame and the power of shame, because I I keep asking myself, you know, we've had at least 30 years to get with the program around climate change. We've known uh, of global warming for more than 30 years now. And why have we been so slow? And and so I, I looked at this shame. We've already talked about how um, we've been shamed away from seeing the divine in nature, you know, uh, pagans, alternative people, animists, shaman, they're all kind of ridiculed by the dominant culture. We're shamed away from the body, we're shamed away from our animality, um, and, you know, taught to be distant from nature. And, and then we're kind of just generally shamed away from nature that she's inferior, that these animals are dumb. Um, it's dirty, it's uh, smelly, it's uh, full of germs, you know. So, so there's this triple, triple spiral of shame that I talk about, the, the wrongness of nature, the wrongness of our animality, and the wrongness of seeing God in nature. And I think that potentially we can unspiral and use all of these as places of power but I would love to hear some of your thoughts around shame because I, I suspect you've thought about it a lot or, um, yeah, I feel sure that you have something to say, to, to offer to that whole, that whole notion really on my triple spiral of shame. Mm, yeah. Well, it's interesting because it, shame, like everything else, is so out of whack now. We don't know how to relate to it. So now we're... 
I mean, people who are part of what we might uh, uh, characterize as woke culture like to do a lot of shaming, but then at the same time, people are, uh, they're, they're, shame has gotten like a bad reputation as if what we mean by it is something very different than the, the wisdom traditions teach, which is that, so Buddha said, for instance, if you if you steal from somebody and you don't feel any shame, that's a real problem. Mm-hmm. Because shame is an indicator to you that something is off. Now, the question is what? Of course, we need, we need to listen, right? We need to say, what is it that's off? And the path, usually, for finding it is, well, where where would I restore dignity and honor? If there's real shame here, then the, there ha- there must be. It's not a mere factoid that can't be changed. It, it is relational, and it must have to do with a calling from my soul to restore dignity and honor. And so that's part of it too. I think that Emerson is talking about is you know how do we become adults? We're not, we're not supposed to be children. Remember, it's like this idea of children cowering in the corner somewhere that there is a courage that we have to touch that says, well, I must need to restore dignity and honor, and I'm being taught by the natural world what that even is. You know, you mentioned the wolves, and it's when you look at some of the ethology, the wolf behavior um, studies, it's real clear that we would have learned from them dignity, that we they are such good examples, you know, that, that of course wolves vary like humans do, but when you look at the ones who have real a dignity and know how to be with their family and know how to be loyal to each other and cooperate, we're seeing values that are just there in nature. It's not like human beings invented values and, you know, they only exist in our heads, but they are there. They're part of nature. So, I mean, this is a complicated, obviously, it's a complex subject and I appreciate that you're wrestling with it, but you're surely right that there's something weird there where we have to ask the question, well, how do we restore dignity and honor to ourselves and the world at the same time? Yes, and that's a beautiful way of looking at it. I think, absolutely. How do we restore dignity and honor? That's, yeah, that's that's very helpful. Um, and I, I do think that 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 is what we need to do, Nikos. And and the great thing about environmentalism these days is that there are so many people, so many voices, so many thinkers, so many individuals. Uh, at this work in one way or another, and there, there, you know, it's sort of like the 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 the, the sort of poison gas, the mustard gas of of harm seeped into everything. So it's like every area of our lives needs addressing, and I do I do see that I do see that people are addressing every area of our lives, but we just need more hands on deck, I think, um, to restore that dignity. Yeah. Yeah, we do. We do need to uh, figure out how to do that, how to cooperate to do that. And that's, to me, what what the wisdom traditions make available to us, because there isn't um, some kind of novel kind of, you know, you could say, like, there's not cutting-edge wisdom in the same way that there's cutting-edge technology. We don't have to invent some (laughs) new idea, you know, but... (laughs) I, I know it's, but at the same time, of course, wisdom has to be alive in the moment, and that's part of what Emerson was saying. You can't just think that you can quote Socrates and then you're wise. You have to do, as you were talking about, as we started with, you have to undergo that transformation, and then you can speak it freshly now, today. It starts to come through you, but it's still this, you realize that you are touching the the wisdom of the ages, mm-hmm. you know, but just in its in its fresh form now. 
And um, that's why I think we need to turn to these traditions, and that includes indigenous traditions. We have this vast storehouse of wisdom, love, and beauty that could guide us in this project because we do need, we can't escape philosophy. That's the thing we're not going to be able to escape because it's how we do things. Well, how do we live with the world? Well, that's a philosophical question. Uh, So I wondered if we could uh, turn to, uh, uh, this is a way to maybe weave in some of this wisdom. Uh, I was wondering if we could look at your poem on gathering the wild grasses. She gathers the wild grasses. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of poems I'd love to touch on here, but you know, I just thought it might be interesting if you could read some sections of that, and then I can interweave it with some passages that seem resonant and that bring out some of these teachings uh, that we're trying to get at. Absolutely, yeah, I'd be delighted to. Uh, did you have any particular passages in mind, Nikos? Or let's just you know start at the beginning and see. <laughs> See where we go if we do a little bit of back and forth. Okay. Um, Yeah, great. Well, she gathers the wild grasses. Just to uh, give a bit of context, I was in Italy with a number of other poets who write about nature and the environment. And we were all doing our different things every day, going off. and, And I found myself gathering different types of grass, the grass seed heads, which I've always had a bit of a fascination with and all these different seed heads were so exquisitely beautiful uh, in their various forms. And that just began a kind of a meditative long poem, uh, which allowed me to explore some of the things that are resonating and interconnected with grass and farming and all kinds of things. Um, so I, I begin with the two quotes, one that I had found from, from your, your work, you had pointed me to this, to take up 100 grasses is to take up yourself, uh, which is Dogen, as you've said. Um, and also from Ted Hughes's poem, Daffodils, he says, mainly we were hungry to convert everything to profit, still nomads, still strangers to our whole possession. But first I arrange them in an earthen jug, one of every grass that grows along the road to Panicale, Something in their form, their green or grain, invites a quickening, kernel deep. And I remember how it was women who, gathering the first grasses and scattering their seed, became the earliest farmers, inventing an agriculture that brought the nomadic tribes to rest. In the stone house at Panicale, beneath its terracotta roof with doors and windows open, we flow between rooms on tides of bird song, neither outside nor entirely in. The walls are shelter, but porous, permeable to the lift of wings, to every small beak and throat, and church bells across the hill, announcing each swallow-stitched hour. There are tall daisies in the meadow beneath the house, golden trefoil, and a tendril weave of campion, sweet pea, and purple vetch. There are twelve kinds of orchid and countless other flowers I cannot name, but still I reach for grass. And dust... Let me uh, 
let yeah. me come in with yeah. a little interweaving, if that sounds yeah. all right to you, and then we'll yeah, continue. Yeah. So what, one of the things that came to mind, it might, might be more elegant if I were just um, just interweaving, but I'll just mention that uh, Braiding Sweetgrass Mm. Uh, by Robin Wall Kimmerer, she t she opens with you know why why is it called why where's the book getting its name and part of it has to do with uh, the fact that uh, this is where the uh, this is where the world began in the story of Sky Woman and uh, Sky Woman uh, you know a hole, a hole opens and Sky Woman falls down and it, it, it uh, you know there's there's this beautiful story about how the the birds see that she's falling and realize that she needs she needs help, so they fly and just there's this whole whirlpool of birds who kind of keeping her suspended and gently bringing her down, but she doesn't have any place to land. So then, turtle comes and says, "Here, you can stand on my back," and then they realize, "Well, you're going to need a more permanent place to stand, so we've got to got to have some kind of earth for you." And so then all the beings cooperate to try to get some because they know there's some sacred special mud down at the bottom of the water. And all the beings keep failing, and finally little Muskrat, who's a little puny person, and everybody thinks, well, this is not going to go well. What's Muskrat think he can do? And he goes down there, and he's gone a long time, and he comes back, and uh, and he has drowned. You know, they see bubbles first come, and then Muskrat's body comes, and they say, oh, my goodness, he didn't make it. But then in his tiny little hand, he's got a little, little ball of that mud. So he succeeded and sacrificed himself for the whole. And then she puts it on the turtle's back and she spreads it out. And she had brought with her from the sky world all, all these seeds. And she plants, and the first one she plants is sweet grass. So then uh, Robin Walkimmer Wal has some, some passages about sweet grass. And so here I'm going to start with uh, just a couple of them and then we'll continue. Sweet grass is best planted not by seed but by putting roots directly in the ground. Thus the plant is passed from hand to earth to hand across years and generations. Its favored habitat is sunny, well-watered meadows. It thrives along disturbed edges. Our stories say that of all the plants, sweet grass was the very first to grow on the earth its fragrance a sweet memory of Sky Woman's hand. Accordingly, it is honored as one of the four sacred plants of my people. Breathe in its scent, and you start to remember things you didn't know you'd forgotten. Our elders say that ceremonies are the way we remember to remember. And so, sweetgrass is a powerful ceremonial plant cherished by many indigenous nations. It is also used to make beautiful baskets, both medicine and a relative. Its value is both material and spiritual. There is such tenderness in braiding the hair of someone you love. Kindness and something more flow between the braider and the braided, the two connected by the cord of the plate. Sweetgrass waves in strands, long and shining, like a woman's freshly washed hair. And so we say it is the flowing hair of Mother Earth. When we braid sweetgrass, we are braiding the hair of Mother Earth, showing her our loving attention, our care for her beauty and well-being. 
in gratitude for all she has given us. Children hearing the Sky Woman story from birth know in their bones the responsibility that flows between humans and the earth. Okay, now you. <laughs> well, great to be reminded of Robin Wall Kimmerer, who's been an inspiration for me as well. Um, yeah. And dusk is not so much the fade of light, but the wake and call of tawny owls. From the terrace, we drift our gaze across valleys of endless seeming trees and trace the erratic dart and loop of bats dissolving in the darkening sky. Pipistrels, Mark names them. And he, recently returned from watching whales in the San Ignacio Lagoon, says, it's the wild creatures that give me shelter. Sean leaves our evening chatter, descends the stone stairs towards the olive grove. How long before he re-emerges through the fallen night and leads us after him like children to see the fireflies? Theirs is a dance of tiny, miraculous lights, of minute torches searching meadow grass, a theatre we stand in ovation for, transfixed. I lay the different grasses along a page of my notebook, each green stalk with its differing spike or soft branched panicle, an assemblage of meadow art arranged on white paper with the hope that seed or form will gift me meaning sane and nourishing as grain. Grass one, Italian rye, its stem stiff as wire, its spike a plain, concise head, an inflorescence of thin seeds that tight as chain mail, which suggests all our inventions are mere copies from nature's archetype. And I remember the fragments I've seen of early temples, how the goddess held a sheath of wheat, and her sanctuaries were furnished with a quernstone for grinding and a hearth for baking and bread was sacrament. Okay, I'll come in here for just a moment. Now, there are lots of associations there, there too. I, the Greek in me is saying, yes, thank you for remembering Demeter, and it was probably barley in her particular case. But there you have the mysteries, right? Mm -hmm. That the mysteries were the drinking of the kaikeon, which is the barley drink. Okay, but back to Robin Wall Kimmer. I have a couple other people in mind as well to, to weave in, but this is a little more from Braiding Sweetgrass. Here she's talking about going out into the field to gather it. You can smell it before you see it. A sweetgrass meadow on a summer day. The scent flickers on the breeze. You sniff like a dog on a scent. And then it's gone, replaced by the boggy tang of wet ground. And then it's back, the sweet vanilla fragrance beckoning. Lena wanders into the meadow with the certainty of her years, parting grasses with her slender form. A tiny, gray-haired elder, she is up to her waist in grass. She casts her gaze over all the other species and then makes a beeline to a patch that to the uninitiated looks like all the rest. She runs a ribbon of grass through the thumb and forefinger of her wrinkled brown hand. 
See how glossy it is? It can hide from you among the others, but it wants to be found. That's why it shines like this. But she passes this patch by, letting it slide through her fingers. She obeys the teachings of her ancestors to never take the first plant that you see. I follow behind her as her hands trail lovingly over the bone set and the goldenrod. She spies a gleam in the sward and her step quickens. Ah, bojo, she says. Hello. From the pocket of her old nylon jacket she takes her pouch, deerskin with a beaded red edge, and shakes a little tobacco into the palm of her hand. Eyes closed, murmuring, she raises a hand to the four directions and then scatters the tobacco to the ground. You know this, she says, her eyebrows a question mark, to always leave a gift for the plants, to ask if we might take them. It would be rude not to ask first. Only then does she stoop and pinch off a grass stem at its base, careful not to disturb the roots. She parts the nearby clumps, finding another and another until she has gathered a thick sheaf of shining stems. A winding path marks her progress where the meadow canopy was opened by the trail of her passage. She passes right by many dense patches, leaving them to sway in the breeze. It's our way, she says, to, to take only what we need. I've always been told that you never take more than half. Sometimes she doesn't take any at all, but just comes here to check on the meadow and see how the plants are doing. Our teachings, she says, are very strong. They wouldn't get handed on if they weren't useful. The most important thing to remember is what my grandmother always said. If we use a plant respectfully, it will stay with us and flourish. If we ignore it, it will go away. If you don't give it respect, it will leave us. The plants themselves has shown us this, the teachings of the plants, Mishkos Kenamagwen. As we leave the meadow for the path back through the woods, she twists a handful of timothy into a loose knot upon itself beside the trail. This tells other pickers that I've been here, she says, so that they know not to take any more. This place always gives good sweet grass, since we tend to it right. I thought that resonated with a lot of the images in your lines. The yeah. gathering of the grass. Yes, indeed. The mutuality. I, yeah, really, really lovely to to hear that again, Nikos. And I, it was it reminded me. It's funny how one is, you know, you you kind of hop from book to book or writer to writer. You're and one leads to another, which leads to another, because you have a conversation then with somebody and you say, I really enjoyed braiding sweetgrass. And then they say, oh, you should try this. And I, I had such a conversation recently and I was pointed to Diana Beresford Kruger, uh, who who actually writes of ancient Irish law, a sort of indigenous wisdom from the Brehan laws, which was handed down to her through the oral tradition in County Cork. And, Part of that book, she has a particular uh, a piece that absolutely echoes that, that it was uh, very much known not to take more than um, was the, the right amount to take, that you had to leave enough plant there for the, for the seventh generation. Um, so 
I think people who enjoyed Robin Wall Kimmerer would also enjoy Diana Beresford Kruger, uh, who writes particularly beautifully about the trees. And she's also very hopeful about climate change and fixing climate change and has this lovely recipe that if every person in the world planted a tree a year for the next six years, she's confident that we could cure climate change. And I, I think that that is a wonderful fact to rest in. I don't suppose that every person could plant a tree every year for six years, but I think governments could get on board with planting that many trees every year for six years. And uh, I think that that's a very heartening thought. No, it definitely is. Of course, it's it's not. She's a little oversimplifying because we need to grow forests. In, in we've actually done a bad job. If you look at some of the data on governments who subsidize the planting of trees, people, of course, went out and planted a bunch of trees, but they weren't necessarily. They didn't. Uh, they sometimes monocultures no. or um, trees that didn't really belong in the places they were at. So we have to regrow the forest. But I I do love her work. It's a documentary about her, and then I think is. Uh, is, is that I, I Speak With Trees? I speak yeah, with trees. I can't actually remember the exact title. Yeah. To Speak for the Trees or To Speak for Trees, I think it's. Yeah. Yeah. It's along, yeah. It's along those lines. Yeah, she's really great. She's really wonderful. And um, yeah, it's, it, it, it is true that we could, by taking care again, and part of what happened in this particular chapter that... Um, that's in Braiding Sweetgrass. She's talking about a study that one of her graduate students ended up doing. This woman spent two years growing the sweetgrass. And what they were trying to figure out is the indigenous people were had had talked to them, and I guess they, they went to different data points. I don't remember everything in that chapter, but the idea was they had a map of where sweetgrass once flourished, according to mm-hmm. reliable accounts. And then they, they're they asking, well, why did it disappear in those places, and why is it growing in the places it's growing? Now, the indigenous people... Uh, their fundamental view, remember, is that if you love and respect the plant, it'll it'll love and respect you. If you ignore it or forget about it, it'll leave. Mm. Well, so this young woman, she proposes that she's going to study the sweet grass and and what what you know what is affecting its decline. And the committee say, well, you know, in, any idiot knows that if you harvest something, the population's going to decrease. So there's nothing here you're telling us. And, you know, they really gave her a hard time about it, but she moved forward with the study anyway. And here's what she found. So she had that what they thought was, you see, there were two indigenous approaches. One is that when you pick the sweet grass, you, you don't pull the root. You just make sure you cut the stem. And you do that with your thumbnail. You know, you just pinch it off and you don't disturb the, the root. And the other tribes said, no, it's okay to disturb the root, you know, as long as you're, you don't over-harvest. That's the main issue is you have to be respectful. And so then she spent, this woman spends two years with the, with the, you know, she's got a control group of sweetgrass that's left alone. She's got group A where she does the non-disturbance of the roots harvesting and only harvesting half of it at a maximum. And then the other one where she disturbs the roots, but again, still is, it tries to be as respectful as possible. And the only place where the sweetgrass was dying out was the one that was left untouched. And her committee had to admit that they did not expect that. But that the sweetgrass and the humans then have a deeply reciprocal relationship. They do need to remember and care for each other. And so she showed that if if the grass is harvested, it thrives as long as it's harvested in a respectful way. I think that word reciprocal or a reciprocal relationship with nature is so very, very beautiful, uh, Nikos. And 
yeah, a great, a great foundation to begin with. Um, you know, one of the great foundations. And it, it reminded me uh, the phrase where I first heard that phrase was from another of your poems. You're, you're, you're Americans. You have so many great uh, writers and thinkers and poets. Uh, Patty Ann Rogers, who has written beautifully about nature. I, I'm not sure that she particularly wrote as an advocate for the environment, but her work advocates quite naturally for the environment. And she talks about a reciprocal relationship. And she's a poet I I would really recommend um, if people aren't aware of her, Patty Ann Rogers. And she has a wonderful poem called The Knot, where she talks about just all day long um, this tying or untying herself to nature by by braiding herself to, to the grasses and to the to the shadows and to every little detail that she sees. Anyway, um, that reciprocal relationship with nature, it's a wonderful thing to, to read about. Yeah. And the trick there, too, is that there's a subtle seduction in, in the language because what, what we can mistakenly think is that, that, that I'm here and nature's there and the two of us have a reciprocal relationship. And um, the, the, the more subtle understanding of that is that there isn't a pre-existing me or a pre-existing sweetgrass, mm-hmm. but that the, the pattern of relationality is what gives rise to the human and the sweetgrass, you know, so that neither is it. We can just have this idea that, that each thing exists from its own side. And, and this was the, the insanity of Buddha's initial insight, because what he said is, and you can imagine he's sitting in a forest, of course, right? Buddha has to, he, he goes in, into a river, submerges himself in that water, and he goes into a wild place. And that was the gold standard, you could say, of Buddhist epistemology. You went into the wilderness, and it still is really in a certain way. So even though they're non-dualistic and they would say, sure, you could become a Buddha in New York City, but you see very few people are trying to do that. They still go to caves and wild places. So Buddha is there in this wild place, and you can imagine he, it's because he describes it in the Pali Canon, his enlightenment. When he comes out of the woods, I think it's important to recognize that he doesn't come out with this announcement um, that he of his real experience. He comes out and he says... You know, he meets these people he was studying with, and uh, he basically says, well, you, you know, you know how bad things happen, right? Right? You know, I mean, you get sick, you stub your toe, you're going to die. Uh, you know, just crap happens. And so he's meeting them on this level that's very practical and honest. But what he doesn't say right away is, you'll never believe what happened to the woods. I had this ecstatic experience of bliss. Everything is bliss. You can't even believe it. It's just unbelievable bliss. I, can't, I don't even know how to tell you about it. And when I was sitting there, here's what I realized. I realized that is like that. And you can imagine him like pointing at a tree or pointing at the whole forest. That is like that because this is like this. And you can imagine him pointing at his, his self in some way, at his body. And this is like this, because that is like that. That's his actual realization, which sounds so dumb that, of course, that's not what he first said. But he was, in other words, realizing the total mutuality, the total reciprocality of everything so completely that he could only be like he was because the tree, the forest, was what it was. And so there's a total dependence that we have on these beings. 
and they on us. That's where we have our, our dignity and our, and our honor. To restore our dignity and our honor is to, is to fulfill our part in that. Yes, yeah. And I do think that that, that, that does, you know, I, I both am a, an avid gardener in my own place and I volunteer with this tree charity with many other volunteers. And, and I see that, that restoration of dignity when we take our part. Um, it's a very living thing when people come together to plant trees or tend tend an orchard or garden together. Um, there is such a beautiful restoration of deep human dignity. And, and people just leave pretty elated, I think, really. The joy of coming together to work on the land with others, uh, is, it's pretty infectious. Yeah. Let me... Um... Uh, let me ask you to read just that on 41, just that first uh, section on grass one, the first section that begins, it's it's technically three couplets. Grass one, grass one, Italian rye, its stem stiff as wire, its spike a plain concise head, an inflorescence of thin seeds tight as chain mail, which suggests all our inventions are mere copies from nature's archetype. And of course that brought to mind, which maybe we'll have a chance to do a little back and forth on the famous leaves of grass. And from that line, I'll just echo this. These are the thoughts of all people in all ages and lands. They are not original with me. If they are not yours as much as mine, they are nothing or next to nothing. If they do not enclose everything, they are next to nothing. If they are not the riddle and the untying of the riddle, they are nothing. If they are not just as close as they are distant, they are nothing. This is the grass that grows wherever the land is and water is. This is the common air that bathes the globe. This is the breath of laws and songs and behavior. This is the tasteless water of souls. This is the true sustenance. It is for the illiterate. It is for the judges of the Supreme Court. It is for the federal capital and the state capitals. It is for the admirable communes of literary human beings and composers and singers and lecturers and engineers and savants. It is for the endless race of working people and farmers and seamen. Great. And, and that's Whitman? That's Leaves of Grass? That's leaves of grass, yeah. And so then maybe we can do another counterpoint. If you read a little further of yours, I'll give you a little more Whitman, which, of course, people know some of these lines. They're some of his most famous, but he was quite a mystic. I really love him. Great. So uh, we'd actually got as far as grass two. Uh, that's where we're at, yeah. Yeah, that's where we're at. So grass two is anisantha with a shine to its pink casings so that light and green and mauve turn like a mobile above a baby's cot whispering a prayer of grass. They lure me in the grasses, fascinators, textured, tactile, their green hairs, their awns, so fine you'd think they'd fray or fail in wind and rain, and yet they have the tensile strength to withstand gale, the presence to quieten me. Grass three, floating sweet grass, with long, thin seed heads, long glooms that might once have given us the measure of an inch. 
Still nomads, Hughes wrote, still strangers to our whole possession. Is it that we skim the surface of this earth, rootless as stones, skimmed across the surface of a lake, our lives in flight? If I reach for grass, is it to work a snare, as if my woman's hand could bring our tribes to rest and let the wild grasses offer up another agriculture, white-rooted, rhizomed, mycorrhizal, all things in their connection. I really like that. Uh, I mean, this, I mean, there's so many good uh, poems in this book, but I like that, and I, I wanted to just echo a little bit because you have the um, the mobile uh, above a baby's cot mm. whispering a prayer of grass, which I really like, and that that image of childhood brings this from uh, Leaves of Grass. A child said, What is the grass? Fetching it to me with full hands. How could I answer the child? I do not know what it is any more than he. I guess it must be the flag of my disposition, out of hopeful green stuff woven. Or I guess it is the handkerchief of the Lord, a scented gift and remembrancer, designedly dropped, bearing the owner's name some way in the corners, that we, we, we may see and remark and say, Whose? Or I guess the grass is itself a child, the produced babe of the vegetation, or I guess it is a uniform hieroglyphic, and it means sprouting alike in broad zones and narrow zones, growing among black folks as among white, Kennock, Tuckahoe, Congressman Cuff. I give them the same, I receive them the same, and now it seems to me the beautiful uncut hair of graves. Tenderly will I use you, curling grass, it may be you transpire from the breasts of young men. It may be, if I had known them, I would have loved them. It may be you are from old people and from women, and from offspring taken soon out of their mother's laps. And here you are, the mother's laps. I like how that uh, also resonates with yeah. your gathering up and what will you use it for and there's so many of these little i wish we could we should just do a little artistic piece just to do these echoes yeah i i love it i love that it does resonate so much um that's that's gorgeous and i wanted to i'll invite you i'll give you another thing of, of whitman to hang on and then it'll it's a funny pun on on the next section of your poem so i'll read this and you can re read yours i celebrate myself and what I assume you shall assume, for every atom belonging to me as good belongs to you. I loaf and invite my soul. I lean and loaf at my ease, observing a spear of summer grass. And now you continue where you... <laughs> <laughs> That's great. It's a different loaf. It's a different loaf. <laughs> but it makes you wonder. It is bread I love when I travel. Our place gives up its different loaf. Focaccia from Liguria, Tuscan bread made without salt. An alphabet of breads, local as Waterford's soft blah. And across the Camera Mountains, trays of grinders in Clonmel. I've had the luck to live loaf by loaf, to weigh out flour and prove my own dough. Something forever illiterate and welcome 
in signing each crust with my mark. Grass four, creeping soft grass, which begins silken, tufted, packed, only to dive into the abandon of branches, the mimic of a minute rose-coloured tree. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. When we soaked our wheat in toxins, it was not without consequence. I watched my daughter crumple up in pain, cry out as her belly cramped, until we understood the effects of glyphosate. We shopped then for other nations' grains, quinoa, chia, amaranth, and there were few reports of how the prices of those staples rose, the hunger and civil unrest, how one thing could lead to another half a world away, poison in our fields and battens coming down on women and children. There's that interwovenness, isn't it? Like we're, that's what's in our bread. Yeah, is that is the, we're eating our interwovenness. We don't see it. If you didn't uh, believe in Buddha's insight, yeah. <laughs> yeah. there it is. Yeah, I, I think so very much. So, um, Nikos, I, I think that's absolutely everywhere now, and I and I do think it is. It's actually apparent. Um, you know, one has friends, one has family members. People are becoming unwell, you know, people are struggling, people have gastric disorders, IBS, um, leaky gut, all of these kind of things. It's not the occasional person. When I was young, when I was a child, uh, if you were a celiac and you needed some kind of gluten-free food, you'd have to go to a very special shop somewhere and you might have one option of some gluten-free something. Well, the aisle that contains the gluten-free food now is yards and yards and yards long and the options are so many because we just you know the glyphosate in the grain it just destroys the gut bacteria that can eat gluten and it's a it's an it's it's endemic i don't know what the right what the right word there is but it and we can't ignore it and we are ignoring it and i think it's just an absolute tragedy because if this is what is happening to humans what is it doing to the field mice what is it doing to the hares the birds um so yeah uh, you know that's one of the very first things we've got to address and and it's tragic when you consider again another fine american um rachel carson writing uh in the 60s about poisons on the fields and we've managed to cod ourselves to use an Irish expression to to fool ourselves for the since the 60s you know it's an awfully long time ago now that uh the poisons we were using in the fields were not doing harm and and that was just uh absolutely dishonest of us to do that mm-hmm and you also see the a certain pattern of insanity at work there too because part of the issue is the difference in what we what we see today is industrialized bread. Mm-hmm. So we, we we call it bread. This is another trick of language, and I always uh, tell people this too that uh, you know uh, the guy we call Confucius, Kongzu, um, he was a philosopher who, like Socrates, didn't uh, didn't make a very good living at it. Um, Socrates was working class, though he was a blue collar guy, and uh, so Kongzu 
and Plato did this too, they went around looking for leaders. They thought, you know, if you could get a leader, uh, uh, you know, somebody who's really the head of, of, a, of, a, of a large, either a city-state, something like this, um, and you could get them to be to become this wise person, to make, to make that, take that journey that you're talking about, that mythic journey to find real wisdom, love, and beauty, then that would change so much because they would have such an impact on everybody. And then, the, and also, it would it would be so healthy for the society because people would naturally want to follow somebody like this who was wise. Because Kongsu believed that such a person would be very charismatic too. He thought so. Okay, so then that he, he had a hard time doing this, and his students said to him, "Well, Master, what if somebody did hire you? You know, say some some king says, all right, you tell me what to do. What's the first thing you tell him to do?'" And Kongsu said, "Well, the first thing we need to do is we need to rectify all the names." And what does that mean? Well, because you're calling this thing bread. But if you took this thing back 500 years ago and you gave it to somebody in the you know south of France, they'd say, what the hell is this? <laughs> you know, what, what, do you, what do you call that? Wait, you're saying this is bread? Yes. And the same is true of so many things in our world. You took an apple, you took a whatever it might be, a, you know, the, the, the tomato, carrot. And you, definitely. A, tomato. Right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I think that's a very profound, Nikos, and that is part of the the strange conformity of consciousness. We we are fooling ourselves that this is bread, and and it isn't. And yeah, that is absolutely the state of things. So we do need to peel these cataracts off our eyes and a name. So tell me a little bit more about that. The naming of things. Well, yeah. I mean, for one thing, you, you know, if we were to put this in today's world, we might, for some breads, because of course you have people who are trying to recover this. I and mean, even here on Turtle Island, there's a famous bakery in San Francisco where the bakery uh, was started because a, a woman who had um, at least gluten intolerance, if not outright, I, I don't know if she was technically celiac, but had real problems. They went to France she and her partner, and they just couldn't resist. They, okay, it's worth it. I need to have some fresh <laughs> French bread. And no problems digesting it. Mm. So then they started to inquire into this process, and their specialty then became sourdough, mm. because the sourdough, the, the, the yeast will digest, will break down the gluten for you. And especially if you use a whole grain, a wheat as well, that also helps in the digestibility. So industrial, so what would you call bread that most people get? You could call it Franken-bread or industrialized bread, and you would have to not use that word. Similarly, we have this word development. We use that all the time. Oh, we're going to go. We're going to have a development here. What that means is a degradation. So every time we're using the word development and progress, it means that some species is going to, you know, go extinct, or some ecology is going to be degraded and torn apart. So these are the kinds of rectifications. You know, we're using a word like it means some democracy. We use that word. That's not what we have. So we need to call it managed democracy or inverted totalitarianism. And so this is the kind of rectification that uh, Kongza is talking about, and you need to have the words mean what they're supposed to mean. Mm, perfect. I love it. Bringing it on. <laughs> yeah, I've always liked that about him, and I think it's tricky because every time I try to uh, to, to write about philosophy, I find that this is a, a, a problem because so much of our language has been co-opted that you can't, even the word philosophy, what that means in the dominant culture is abstractions, you know, mm -hmm. questions without answers, a bunch of, we don't realize that, no, when, you're, when your child is crumpled over with those cramps in her belly, 
That's the consequences of bad philosophy. Mm. That's not some abstraction. You feel it. It's in our blood. Yeah. It's the plastic in our blood is the consequences of a bad philosophy. Mm. And so that's, uh, that's the intimacy we need to recover. Yeah. There's a lot of that in this book. There's a lot of uh, the non-duality. You're trying to touch that non-duality of grief and praise. And there's a lot of the, the, this recognition of the suffering of sentient beings and how that inter it's interwoven with your own experiences of life that the suffering of these beings out there also appears in our bodies as a tumor or as um, cramps or whatever it might be in, indeed um Nicholas, that's absolutely right and that reminds me of another writer who i refer to and I'm, I'm deeply grateful that he exists and that's martin shaw the storyteller um, in in England, and again, your listeners, I'm sure, would enjoy making their way to Martin Shore if they don't already know him. And I I quote from him. He says that we are in the underworld, and the only way to, to survive being in the underworld is to be able to hold uh, wonder and grief at exactly the same time. And I think that 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 is the now. You know, that is. The task, and it would be great to think that actually we had tipped beyond that and, and and into a place where one could have a bit more wonder and a bit less grief because we were really addressing the the situation that we're in. But for now, I think we certainly and I particularly am locked in in wonder and grief, grief at the the losses, grief at the environmental destruction, and wonder at the beauty of the world that we've been given. And seeing the all oneness uh, as much as possible while it's still here, but particularly this week, I've been noticing here it is kind of late summer here, August. Some of the birds are are kind of massing, the starlings are massing, and you you should be able to get a murmuration of starlings that kind of darkens the sky. These huge, huge clouds. Well, there are probably a few places where you get a few of those now, but we have much, much smaller clusters of these starlings maybe 30 or 40 birds instead of 400 or 4000 um but even as i'm looking at them i'm thinking you know you 30 you 30 starlings making your beautiful patterns in the sky am i going to be one of the last people to see you so i am in in constant wonder and grief uh at the world and it's a terribly painful place to be but i I'm also in that wonder all the time, and I make it a, a daily business to see the wonder uh, because we are on such an amazing planet with so many riches that are available to us all the time if we are eyes open. Yeah. Well, there's a, I mean, there's a couple of things going on there, really. I, I mean, Shaw is correct, but but I think you need a fuller description one is that we have to have a non-duality of grief and praise because it's it, we ha we only grieve what we love so that so grief and praise go together and the wonder is always must always be present because there's not just the wonder on the one hand that wow we live in an amazing planet and so there's that sense of awe but but the wonder then also is for the grief itself in other words to look at the energy of grief d directly at it is to touch the wonder of what reality is, what we are all together with this world in our grief and praise. 
because wolves howl in grief, and they also howl in joy and praise. They, you know, and so it's said in in many traditions. It's one of the places that I, I think it's so wonderful. In in the Greeks were clear about this that love wisdom begins in wonder. And they really just had that sense to, to, to have the experience of the sacred, the awe, the mysterious, and to say, whoa, and let that call you to understand your grief and praise, what you love, what you fear, what, what, you, what is angering to you, and to work with all of it. Because just even there, we, and that's why I always say, too, that we need, I thought, how do I read Grace's poems without a practice of compassion? Because there's enough personal suffering and difficulty in it, that it, it really requires some compassion for, for our shared experience of suffering. You know, like, how do, we, how do we face the grief if we don't touch the power of compassion, the strength of compassion, mm-hmm. and that attitude that sees the grief itself the insanity itself as an expression of this wonder. I think that it can come for me, Nikosa, that just occasionally one can behold the grief and experience it as enormous beauty. But that's almost a grace to be able to have that happen, you know, to... Yeah, one isn't really transcending one's grief, but I, perhaps one is so fully in it that it that it somehow becomes light again. I, I don't even know what I'm trying to say, but it's sort of, I, I do know that there are moments when the heart can open so much to that human experience of grief and suffering. And, and it is quite holy, um, I have experienced that. I'm thinking as well of Oscar Wilde um, when he goes to jail and he writes De Profundis. That, that That is where he kind of ends up and he writes quite beautifully in the last few lines of that work around the beauty and suffering. And I think that's a, you know, speaking of wisdom and uh, the wisdom tradition, I'm sure there is a lot of material in the wisdom tradition around the, the beauty within grief that we we don't really have available to us in the West. It's not really, uh, it's not really there. I don't think a kind of a luminous quality to grief. Um, we we are kind of we, we therapy ourselves out of it, or we take pills to get out of it, or something. But to to find the the language to help us experience it as something quite holy, I think, is a challenge. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's a lot of subtlety there because it's easily to it's easy to get caught up in spiritual materialisms of grief and to essentially use it to avoid looking at what we need to look at and doing what we need to do. But the you're right, the traditions. I mean, it's our tradition too. It's been covered over a lot in the dominant culture. But, you know, we're st- we still have those Greek uh, roots. And the teachings are there in the mystical Christians, in, in the um, so many good strands. But you're, you are right that it seems to me that in order to get the practice, how do we really approach grief and work with it? The practices are much better elaborated in, in, in terms of what we have easily available to us outside of the dominant culture, at least some elements. They're just not so clearly laid out like compassion as a practice for turning toward grief. 
that is really well done by by Buddha, and it's it's extraordinary. And now we put people in fMRI scanners, and we find out, yeah, whatever he was onto, mm. he really did understand something about the mind mm. and how we work with these really powerful emotions, because they they themselves are seen as gateways to reality. When you have that incredible level of of energy flowing through you, then there is this opening that can happen, and it could become very transformative. And you're right. There's a there's an element of it that is like a divine madness. That insight would have to be like that divine madness. It seems to come from outside of us, but then it's paradoxical because we see that it's what we are. We're seeing what we are. But lots to work with, no doubt about it, and lots to to because we if we don't learn how to grieve, we're going to keep being afraid to look at what we're doing. Yeah. And and of course, the best art, the best theater, and takes us to that i think you know you the, the great tragedies uh, arthur miller was very good at that this kind of we would behold the terrible tragedy of death of a salesman or something and somehow within this tragedy there was an exquisite beauty of of looking at this just awfulness this awful awful thing and yet it was somehow um in its in its exposition, in its sort of, in its being shown to us, in its being revealed, that was something. Again, I'm I'm going back to that word, holy. But um, yeah, I do think that the arts, well, they're they're one path toward um, the wisdom, really. I suppose. They can be. I mean, this is Plato's critique, right? I mean, Plato, who wanted to be a tragedian, and I think gives you the sense if you when you read the dialogues. He's got an elegance that gives you the sense that he probably could have pulled it off if he had gone that direction. But it seems that he was stopped by Socrates, who essentially said, hey, they don't know what they're doing. They, they, they create these, the tragedians, the poets, they create these, uh, the, the situation where a person can go and experience this, the, the wonder, you know, which, which has a scary side to it. You know, sacredness, in one definition of the sacred or what's truly awesome or wondrous about life, is that which instills fear and trembling in an untrained heart. That your natural response to it is, oh my God. And so what Socrates is saying is, do you really, if, if our society, we've got these incredible poets, right? I mean, we still read these people to this day. And Socrates is saying, for all their genius, what do you think of our culture? I mean, is this a culture of wisdom, love, and beauty? Everybody here goes. It's the only form of entertainment, right? Is go and hear these poets. We don't have television. He might have. He might say to us today, "We didn't have the internet. We didn't. Have, we went and saw Aeschylus." And did that make anybody truly wise? Socrates is saying no, because by itself it can't. Love, wisdom has to teach you how to receive it in a way that the soul could really let it uh, trans be, be transformed. And moreover, he just also thought that the it, the poet who has this training will do an even better job of making that a possibility. That the person would not just see the incredible, oh my goodness, but but have the transformation, like in Dogen's story about the teacher who's teaching about the the way the mountain colors and the valley sounds yeah. are the voice of the sacred, talking directly to you, or the body of the sacred revealing itself directly to you. But you'd have to know how to see that. Because any old idiot can go down into the valley and hear those sounds. And they can say, oh, I'm a nature person. I, I'm, I'm in the church of love for the world, right? 
And yet, so this, this was the critique, though. I always say it's it's respectful because I think Plato and Socrates, they quote the poets, they appreciate them, and they're saying, but we must need something more, and that's part of what they offer us, is how to handle these things with care and reverence. Beautiful. When, when you were talking, Nikos, I was reminded of the lotus flower, um, you know, that the Buddhists really come back again and again to the lotus and how the lotus, it, its flower is so white, so so beautiful, so pristine, and yet the roots are down in the mud and the muck uh, at the bottom of the pond. And I, I think that's the... That's the that's the sort of something to do with the, the the grace within suffering that we have to be down in the muck at the bottom of the pond. Like the earthly life cannot really be transcended or, or not for too long anyway. We may get a glimpse of transcending it, but it's being both the the root at the bottom of the pond and the mud and the flower at the same time uh, that I, I I come back to anyway because my my glimpses of the flower like the, the, those lotus flowers they don't last whereas the the mud and the roots do do kind of have a little bit more longevity i think um and it's to find both both beautiful to find both states uh, having their beauty oh absolutely and that definitely makes me think of one of the great poets of our time Thich Nhat han you know who uh was such a, a successful poet, you know, the, everybody, people were, like you when you were talking about Neruda, Thich Nhat Hanh was that in Vietnam, you know, people were setting his, some of his poems to music, and they were, uh, and that, that is a wonderful thing to even think about, you know, that, that we could have that again, you know, and in some ways we, we have figures who are similar to that, but that, you know, he has that famous expression, no mud, no lotus, and he has this poem, Call Me By My True Names, where he says, you know, I'm I'm the whole mess. Mm. You know, if you, you you think you you think I'm nice, but I'm also the the pirate who who uh, kidnaps and rapes women, mm. and you, you know, so you have to see that we're we're all we're all in this together, and everything is interwoven in the most profound and and a little bit terrifying way. Mm. Wondered though if I could give you the last word. I, I want to um, close maybe with your last two stanzas from this book. Would you? Would that feel okay to you? Oh, to, sure. Ninety-eight. I'd be delighted to. Um, yes. Maybe you should t- 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 give people a little context, though, and especially the. the yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I mean, yeah. I'm gonna I'm gonna try and give a little context. It's it's kind of hard because for me this this last poem it's about a visit to the aran islands off the west coast of ireland county clare um and yes i i i can't even begin to explain because as you as you're out there on the aran islands you're looking back at the burren and i had heard a talk about the sacred caves in the burren which is where uh, humanity in ireland first began about 10,000 years ago so you're kind of looking at the Holocene, that era of humankind on Earth since the last Ice Age, well, not on Earth, but in Ireland anyway, and th- that that era that we've just lost by moving into the Anthropocene um, and the, the sacred caves, the sacred landscape. Um, so I'm kind of in in this uh, on this island down Angus, which is a, a very ancient sort of sacred temple, sometimes referred to as a fort. Uh, behind me at my back and I'm, I'm coming back down the rocks 
But and I'm speaking to this saint uh, who who had a church out on the Aran Islands, and she had called her church Kilgroa and Dawan, the Church of the Love of the World. So I, I that's where I got the name from the book, the Gobnet. I say here, Gobnet. If I could do anything at all, I brave my arm into our dark, the way prehistoric women once put their hands into the bee's nest bowl of trees to draw out honey. So help me, Gobnet. All that's left to us now is to pull from our shadow our fierce love for the world, Layernok and Dawan, until the end of time. Hmm, that's wonderful. All that's left of for us to pull from our shadow our fierce love for the world. That's going back to that wildness, that fierceness that, that is the wildness, to find that fierceness in ourselves that is not aggressive. Fierce doesn't mean aggressive, because you see this in the Tibetan tradition with the fierce face of compassion. Sometimes these are wrongfully called wrathful deities, but they're actually fierce. They are the fierce face of compassion, and um, that peace has a fierceness in it, that uh, spiritual peace is unflappable, unshakable, and so that makes it really fierce. Mm-hmm because it's amazing to meet a being who just won't be shaken. And um, what a lovely image to have to brave sticking your hand <laughs> into the... Which which might be... What's interesting is, of course, there are cultures like the Pitaha who do that as a as like a proof of of, a, of maturity, to, to, to allow yourself to be... Uh, I think in their case, it's, it's these terrible uh, ants who... It, it's like every bite is like... You know, you're being branded by by a rancher, and uh, so they they ha- they they put their whole hand and these ants all by, and it's like it's supposed to be excruciating, and the person who can keep it in there the longest, you know. So they have these tests of of real emotional control. But then I also wonder if if when she puts her hand in there, because it's a woman and it's a whole different orientation, she might be like that woman who's famous on Instagram. She handles all the bees without a suit whenever she feels that she they're not uh, that. That they can have a relationship like that. Mm-hmm. She says, "Look, I'm not an idiot. It's just that I scoop these bees up because I know they're not going to hurt me because I'm not trying to hurt them. There's some bees you you might have to be. So maybe when she reaches her hand in there, all the men are going, "Oh my God, she's going to get stung up like crazy." And she thinks, "No, because that's not how you stick your hand in there." <laughs> yes, 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 yeah. Much, much to be said on it. It's funny, you know, all these little philosophies of mine. Uh, get woven into the image and I could sit here and, and kind of un, unweave that and explain it all. But ultimately I think that's the task of poetry is to leave you with the image and let the image do the work. Um, I, I've i seen images of, of prehistoric drawings of women climbing trees and putting their arms into the hole and drawing out honey and, um, it just seemed like a, a beautiful metaphor for what we have to do. We have to dig into our shadow and and find our love for the world. And um, I think, you know, when we connect to that fierce love, we can do anything, Nikos. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, it's del- it's delightful to to talk about all of that. It's really, really delightful to be listened to, I have to say. It's um, really, really wonderful to be heard. Uh, so, so I really thank you for your deep listening. Hmm, and thank you for your deep practice, uh, Grace. And thank all of you for your practice of listening. If you have 
questions, reflections, stories to share about your fierce love of the world or any of the things that we touched on, all the magical imagery and um, spiritual feeling that we were able to to get into, feel our way into, please send them in through dangerouswisdom.org. might be able to bring some of that into a future contemplation. Until then, this is Dr. Nikos, your friendly neighborhood soul doctor, reminding you that your soul and the soul of the world are not two things. Take good care of them.